Let us pray. Lord, as we enter in this, into this time where your word is read, we ask that you bless the reading of it. But we also ask that you prepare our hearts to receive whatever movement your Holy Spirit has in store for us. We ask that you clear away all the distractions, all the thoughts that may spring up in our mind, all the things that will compete for our attention during this time. And we ask that as we intentionally dedicate this time to you, that we will be blessed by the guidance, the teaching, and the movement of your Spirit. Lord, bless this time that we have not only in your presence, but in the presence of each other. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of John. Chapter 19, verses 23 through 27. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This week, we conclude a series that we've been doing throughout the season of Lent on the means of grace. We've been talking about uh, what John Wesley called the means of grace, these channels through which we experience God's grace in our lives. And they, they come through physical uh, interaction, physical participation. We've talked about prayer. We've talked about fasting, baptism, communion, uh, searching the scriptures. All of these are physical acts that we do to experience invisible grace from a God that we cannot see. But these are channels through which God's grace is made available to us. And we've been talking about this throughout the season of Lent as we've been also concentrating on what it means to follow Jesus and to follow him all the way to the cross, to make that journey in life with him to the point to where we sacrifice and surrender ourselves just as he did for us. So today as we conclude this series, uh, I think it's appropriate that we talk about what John Wesley called uh, what one of the means of grace's were that he called Christian conferencing, which was the idea of um, Christians getting together and experiencing the grace of God with each other. Because you see, as we make our journey to the cross, as we follow Jesus, we should always remember that we follow Jesus together. We grow in grace with each other, together. 
Now, John Wesley had, uh, he, he placed a lot of importance on this idea. He talked about how important it was for Christians to be uh, in, in communion with each other, to interact with each other, to grow in their faith together as iron sharpens iron. And, and he had different forms of organizing uh, bodies of, of believers. First of all, he had what we call societies. He would have uh, the Methodist Society meetings. And the best way to think of these would be like maybe what we'd call a seeker service or, or really even just the, what, we, uh, what we hope that, that church worship service is, which is um, a meeting of people that we just say, uh, come, you're welcome here no matter what. If, if for any reason you have a longing in your heart to, to know God, to understand more about God, to learn about Jesus, uh, anything like that, if you feel a tug in any way, if you feel that this provenient grace is somehow leading you to be here, you're welcome. You're welcome to come here and be with us. And that was the purpose of these society meetings. They weren't for the people who had grown up in church necessarily, although they, there, many of them came too, most of them did. Uh, but they were for everyone, anyone who at all was interested in knowing about the grace of God. And then within these societies, he, uh, John Wesley also organized these things called classes, which were like smaller groups. And these were more serious. These were dedicated to study. And uh, it's very similar to what we do now with Sunday school or Bible studies. In fact, uh, many people say that John Wesley invented Sunday school. Because he, he organized uh, the, the idea of the class setting within these societies. And then within the societies, he broke it down even smaller and said it's necessary for Christians who are uh, very dedicated and for who, who, who really want to pursue this sanctification, this, this idea of walking with Christ throughout their life. It's necessary for them to gather together in very small groups of, of four to six people. To, to hold each other accountable and to really encourage each other along the journey of faith. Uh, in our conference, our, our bishop requires all of the, the pastors, or doesn't require it, but strongly urges all of the uh, pastors to, to do this, to have small groups with each other. Um, S3 groups, new room groups, these are groups that have been formed within our conference among the, the clergy, where it's, it's just three to six people who, who really hold each other accountable and, and are really committed to each other. And it's been a wonderful thing. And you really experience God's grace in those groups. And all of that came, uh, at least in our denomination, from this, this idea that John Wesley um, was, was pushing. And that was uh, rooted in the, uh, the, the belief that God shows grace to us as we get together, as we convene together. That's really important for us because we live in a very self-indulgent society. In fact, uh, The Atlantic, which is a secular publication, it's not Christian at all, but The, the Atlantic recently had an article written in it uh, talking about self-indulgence is the defining quality of our age, of our time. And then that article alludes to, it refers to uh, another article written uh, by Judith Warner of the New York Times, again, another secular publication that's, that was saying the same thing, that self-indulgence is the defining quality of our time, and not only that, but it's had some severe consequences. 
And Judith Warner in her article talks about uh, preschoolers being expelled from school at the age of four or five years old. Kids who are so easily, or are, are, are so, um, uh, they, they pursue entertainment so much that they easily become bored. Adults who can't find joy anymore because they've spent their whole lives trying to satisfy themselves, to indulge themselves. And obesity is on, on the rise. Drunkenness and alcoholism is on the rise because of this overindulgence, this self-indulgence. Drug addiction is on the rise. Suicide rates are on the rise because our culture is trying to self-indulge more and more and more. And, and we aren't finding fulfillment there. So what we've done is we've come up with all these therapies that we call self-help. And again, it's self-indulgent. We are looking inward. We are concentrating inward. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, I completely believe that we must be aware of who we are. We must be willing to change ourselves. In fact, we, we want to have a personal relationship with God and with Christ, and we want to see who we are individually in light of who Christ is. But the problem is we've gotten so used to being self-indulgent that we think the cure for that is to further isolate ourselves and self-medicate and self-help ourselves. And so we have this, this, this thing going on in our minds, and a lot of times we come to church for the same reason. How can I better myself? How is church going to make me better? How can I better my situation? What does God have to say to me today that's going to, that's going to fix whatever I'm going through? And again, don't get me wrong. God will do powerful and mighty things with you on an individual level as you enter into uh, time with him and as you pursue personal holiness and a personal relationship. But we also have to recognize that one of the, the reasons we come to church, the reason we need to be plugged into a community of other believers is because as we try to be reconciled, as we try to heal, as we try to overcome our self-indulgence, many times God is going to speak to us. God is going to work on us through other people, through other believers. We experience grace through holy conversation, through encouragement, through sharing our concerns and our prayers with each other. I can't tell you how many times I have been encouraged, guided, given wisdom, uh, given affirmation through the words of Claire, my wife. I can't tell you how many times I've come here on Wednesday night and led, led our, our Bible study and then, and then some of you have given me insights back and it's, and it's done that. It's, it's encouraged me, it's sharpened me, it's helped me grow in grace. I can't tell you how many times I've gone, even up to, to Emory, where sometimes I, I do feel isolated and, and detached and pulled apart. I, I go up there and, and, God, and I can see where God has placed certain professors and certain teachers in my life to say the right thing, the right word, in the right season. And I've experienced grace in that way. And I think that if we reflect on that, we can all come up with times, we can all think of times where God has given us a word of encouragement or wisdom or just love through somebody else's voice. You see, God designed it that as we come closer to Jesus, 
we come closer to him. Just like the spokes on a wheel. If Christ is at the center, if Christ is what we are all journeying towards, if, if the cross is what we are, we are going to through the season of Lent, but through every season, and we are all going there together, we are all being pulled in closer in the process. And that brings us to our passage today. As, as Christ was on the cross, as he, as he was suffering, as he was dying, he looked and he saw which of his followers were there. Which of the ones had made it all the way to the cross with him. Now he had told his followers earlier, y'all, y'all are going to be scattered, there's going to be a time where you deny me, you abandon me, you go your own way. Peter said, not me, Lord, I'll never do that. And Jesus said, you're going to de- deny me three times before the rooster crows. And then he did. Now we don't know if, if Peter instantly repented and if he was there at the crucifixion. We don't know. The, the Bible doesn't tell us. But we do know that in the hours leading up to Jesus' death, Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples, abandoned him in that moment. There was one disciple we know didn't do that. That was the disciple Jesus loved. I love that, that, that name for him. It, it appears all through the Gospel of John. Um, the, the writer of the Gospel, John is writing this Gospel, and he says, well, the disciple that Jesus loved did this, and he said that, and Jesus turned to the disciple he loved. And then at the very end of the Gospel, John says, and the disciple Jesus loved was, was me. I, I, I'm the one writing this is the disciple Jesus loved. So he's, he's kind of doing that through the whole Gospel. He's like, yeah, Jesus loved me. And, and there on the cross, Jesus looks down and he sees John. And he says, John, and he looks over at his mother. He says, this is your mother now. Take care of her. And he says to his mother, mother, this is your son now. And it says, John took her in. And from that day, he took her in and took care of her as if he was, uh, as if she was his own mother. And so what happens is people come to the cross They are there to witness this sacrifice, this surrender. And as they're confused by it, as they're troubled by it, as they grieve, as they weep, Jesus says, you're doing all this together and in my presence. And you have my blessing. And now y'all are family. And in the church, we, we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. That's familiar language. But that's what happens. We all become part of this family because we are all serving the same God. We all come to the cross together. And Jesus looks at us from the cross and he says, Brother, this is your sister. Sister, this is your father. This is your mother. Mother, this is your child. Because you've all come here together. You are all connected by my love. And and whether you are grieving together or whether you are rejoicing together, you're doing it together. And you're going to experience my grace and my love in the process. That's always been God's plan. If you go back and you look at the Old Testament, the very first story in the Bible, Adam and Eve. God created Adam and then what did he say? It is not good for man to be alone. And he created Eve. And we see other means of grace throughout the creation story. We see how... Jesus, uh, or, or we see how God wanted uh, Adam and Eve to abstain, right? He wanted them to uh, fast in a way. Don't eat that fruit from that tree. That was kind of like, you know, what they were supposed to give up for Lent. And they failed. 
Just like many of us have failed on our Lenten journey, I'm sure. And then they had this open line of communication. They had prayer, another means of grace. But what happened when they fell into sin, they abandoned that. They didn't want to talk to God. They hid from him. And so you see these other means of grace in in play that they weren't participating in. But the one that they couldn't escape was the very first one that God set up for them. And that was being together. It was not good for man to be alone. He intended them to experience it all with each other. If you look elsewhere in the Old Testament and you start to look at the covenants, we've talked a lot about the covenants lately. But you see where God made a covenant with Abraham, he made a covenant with Noah, he made a covenant with David. He never made these, though, to just one person for one person. It was always for a group of people. He made a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. He made a covenant with with Israel, the the entire nation. He made a covenant with, uh, with, with Noah and all of creation. The covenants were meant to be uh, given to a community, to a group, because he wanted us to all experience grace together. And then we see that Jesus also had the same thing in mind when he called his followers. And we know about the 12 disciples, but he, you know, he actually had hundreds of, of followers It says so in the Gospels. It says that many, many followed him. We know that at one point there were 5,000 following him because he had to sit them all down and and feed them. He had many people following him. And we could call this what, what John Wesley called the society. Come if you're curious. You're welcome here. You're welcome to see what this is all about. And Jesus had followers like that, and many of them forsook him, or, uh, turned away from him because they, they just didn't understand what he was doing. But within that group, within that society, he had what you could call classes. He had the twelve. And then within that twelve, his disciples, he had three. Peter, James, and John, his closest friends, the ones he took with him when he went up on the mount the ones that were with him in his, his most intimate moments, the ones that he was asking to come with him in the garden and pray, even in the hours just before he surrendered his life. You see, what John Wesley did was nothing new. The societies, the classes, the bands, all of that was, was put into place by Jesus. John Wesley was always trying to get back to primitive Christianity, to, to the root of it, to the, the earliest form of Christianity. And he knew that in doing that, people had to be together. People had to experience grace together. They experienced the crucifixion of of Jesus together. But more importantly, they experienced his resurrection together. When Jesus appeared to the disciples for the first time, they were all gathered together in a room, except for one, and that was Thomas. And he didn't believe. He was skeptical. He doubted. Because he wasn't there with other people. And it's the same way for us. When we are together, our faith is strengthened. We experience Christ. We experience grace together. But if we isolate ourselves, if we separate ourselves, our faith is weakened. You see, John Wesley's Christian conferencing was a throwback to the earliest form of Christianity. That group of disciples that Jesus called. And the means of grace that we've been talking about for the last several weeks 
They include some very wonderful things. Baptism, communion, searching the scriptures. All of those things are ways that we experience God's grace. But the fellowship that we have with each other, with other believers, that is perhaps the oldest form of grace. Even before the fall, God wanted us to be in communion with each other. In the very beginning, he said it was not good for us to be alone. God knew that iron would sharpen iron. God knew that we could experience his grace through the words and actions and love that we hear and we feel and experience from each other. God knew that those who would choose to be reconciled, those who would choose to follow his son and follow him all the way to the cross, would be strengthened They would find redemption. They would be more able and more willing if they were following with each other. This week is Holy Week, a time when we survey the wondrous cross, its message, its purpose, its power, its meaning. But let us also understand the opportunities all around us every day, opportunities to experience God's grace through the people that he has placed in our lives. We experience grace together. We enter into our sacred covenant with Christ together. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you created us not to be alone, but to to be in fellowship with each other. We thank you for the grace that we so often experience as you bind us together with your love. Lord, in the week ahead, we pray that you bring us all to the cross, that you bring us all to a a point of surrender and and, uh, just personal repentance. But Lord, we also pray that you bring us all to the cross together so that you can look on us And say, behold each other. You are part of the family of God. And you can all share in the love and the grace that I have to offer. Lord, we thank you for this covenant that you extended to us through your son Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Our hymn of invitation this morning is Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. Hymn number 557 in the United Methodist Hymnal. If you've made a decision of any type today, as always, I invite you and encourage you to come forward and, and, uh, and just share that with us during this time. Uh, the altar is always open if you would like to, to come and pray. Uh, but please stand if you are able and join us in, in singing hymn number 557.